0: Hey guys, Eric Bischoff here to talk to you about my friends over at SaveWithConrad.com. Are you looking to get out of debt? Conrad and his team can make that happen faster than me firing the Hockey Talk Man. Wow. And you know that controversy creates cash, right? Do you know what doesn't create cash? credit card debt. Uh-huh. Save with Conrad can help you consolidate high interest credit cards and all of your other debt into one low monthly payment. They can even help you get the cash you need for home improvements or anything else. They've helped 83 weeks listeners save 500, 600, 700, even $800 a month. Seriously, your paper's are going to go down faster than nitro ratings in 2000. Ouch. And how about this? No house payments for 2 months. That's right, no house payments for two months. And unlike the dirt sheets, man, the reviews do not lie. With over 1,000 five-star reviews, find out for yourself how much Conrad and his team can save you by checking out SaveWithConrad.com today. Be grateful you did. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Woo!
1: to make money for the company. Sure. And so I would have retired uh if Steve hadn't been hurt, if they didn't need somebody to pull together, you know, as a as a team. And if Vince hadn't made the determination that Shell wasn't where he needed him to be, that's when he pulled me and Hunter together and said, you know, how do you guys feel about working together? Yeah, man, I loved it because we'd had the, the run in 97 um and you know with dx we'd been in there a lot together we had good chemistry so yeah let's let's do it so that uh epic royal rumble uh resulted in the uh again i wish i knew whether we knew before the rumble or it was immediately afterwards we're gonna do the uh we're gonna do the retirement match because the ultimate goal was still to retire and we're just gonna push that off by uh by four months so that's what i was looking at i dropped i dropped probably about 25 30 25 pounds 30 maybe 30 pounds over the course of six weeks my wife and I had a gym uh Foley's gym in Navarre Florida so uh, because I was the owner I would go in after hours and I worked really hard on the car on the cardio aspect so that I could go and I felt like uh, we were able to go that night um not only at Royal Rumble but at no way out
2: how was she thinking about you perhaps considering retirement did she think it was long overdue, or what was her stance? Uh,
1: she was really concerned, uh, as a wife and as the mother of two small children. You know, her husband really having these difficulties, so she understood. Vince said something to me. It sounded crazy at the time. He may have said he he may have not have said this at the exact time I retired. It may have been months later. But he said, "You know, make what you've done here is going to allow you to make a living for the next ten years." And I thought, no, I think I've got an, about an 18-month shelf life to capitalize on what it is I did. I thought that 10-year thing was... Uh, did he
2: mean like the convention circuit and all that?
1: Uh, yeah, just, yeah. In uh, these, uh, I don't even know what there were conventions at that time. I, I wasn't aware. Uh, I was aware of... San Diego Comic Con only been 10,000 people because I did it in 99 when um, they had that little run of uh, WWE comics. So I had a comic, I did the uh, San Diego Comic Con. So with only 10,000 people there, which is a big Comic Con, but now it's up around 125,000, something, you know, ridiculous. So it wasn't cons weren't on my radar, but, you know, to make guest appearances on independent shows. And Dennis Brent was a head of uh he wasn't the head of talent relations, but he booked talent for outside appearances okay. And at that point, wow, you know, just uh, running the roads in a way that the other guys couldn't because when uh, when when uh, conventions now I'm talking about auto auto shows, things of monster truck shows, things like that, The other superstars who were near the top of the card or at the top of the card, they can't do this because they're working every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you know, four days a week, sometimes more. And I'm the guy who's just left the top of the world and I can do anything, but I'm not doing it with any rhyme or geographic reason. It's just hopping on a plane. I was in Huntsville the day before uh, No Way Out. Okay. I was at a car show in Huntsville. World the of Wheels. Day, World of Wheels. Yeah. I was there the day before, and I look back on that, and I say, why wasn't I in a nice hotel right. right before, like resting up? Why was I getting on a plane the yeah. day of this match and flying back? There's no direct flight from Huntsville to to to, uh, to Hartford. There no. was probably two layovers, there may, yeah. at least one, but you're spending at least six or seven hours of the biggest day of your life traveling to that show so i it was like one of those things where i'm making too much money to t- you know at that point the money you could make for one of those shows hard to say no hard to say no to that because you don't know how if i had known that wow here i am in 2022 so vince was wrong it wasn't 10 years it was 22 decades. and counting yeah that i'm still able to do well i may have uh not taken <laughs> That event the day before <laughs> the biggest show of my Sorry life. Sorry, World yeah. yeah. But it was, uh, I think 2001, I actually had my biggest WWE year ever. And I wasn't, and I only had, oh, 2000, I had the big run. 2000 and 2001, I had two of my biggest years without really wrestling. Did four matches, I think, in 2000,
2: Remarkable. none
1: in 2001. But I was traveling the country and the world went over to Australia for WWE, Southeast Asia, uh for WWE to promote the brand and man I was I was logging some serious miles. Retirement didn't really mean retirement. No, nah, it yeah. didn't at all. And and even when I I remember getting a home and uh we, you know, I marked out really thought I was the WWF commissioner and so we bought a house on Long Island bigger than I wanted to. But part of the reason I bought it with some property was because I didn't want to leave it. I just wanted to be like Howard Hughes in Scotland, my own like uh, private Xanadu. And after about three weeks, my kids were like, dad, can we go somewhere? And I was like, well, we don't have to go somewhere. I'm home now. Right. I'm home. Because as super dad, whenever I was home, you know, when I was over off the road, I'd always spend that first day doing something fun. Arn Anderson told me that. He said, just make sure, no matter how tired you are, you make your presence known that first day. Get the family, take them out to lunch or breakfast, whatever it might be, and be that guy that day. You can get your rest that night. Later on, the next day, you can take your nap, do whatever you need to do. But that first day, do it for the family.
2: It's good advice.
1: Good advice. If you're out there and you're a young wrestler and you're listening, good advice. Be that guy.
2: And wear knee pads.
1: And wear knee pads. Yeah,
2: oh man. Uh, So from your book, Have a Nice Day. This night in Munich would turn out to be even more pain. Too Cold Scorpio, a brilliant high flyer, had wrestled in the evening's first match and had complained that the ropes were too loose. Unbeknownst to me, the German roadies had tightened the cables to the maximum so there was no give on the ropes at all. Um, and again, we, we sort of touched on this, but there is a translation issue, and we're not using our normal crew, and we're using a local crew, but it's apparent that no one at ringside ever communicates that note to the back, right? No.
1: Uh, and I only knew that uh, a too cold one of them tightened up, because you could see on the video that they were tightened up, and that he told me. I think there's an argument can be made that I should have tested the ropes, but I'm specifically not wanting to tip my hat that I have a spot. And now, now, whether or not people would have deduced that by me hitting the ropes, but I specifically don't do it because I don't want to tip my hat. But unbeknownst to me, the ropes are tighter, cables yeah. are tighter than I think they are going to be.
2: So from your book, with my head caught in the ropes, I could
1: immediately feel the difference. Instead
2: of the normal pain that I had long ago accepted as a consequence for this exciting move, I felt as if my neck was in a vice. I literally felt like I was going to die right there. Uh, I'm usually known as a pretty good ring general, and I had kept a calm head in some pretty bizarre conditions, but in this case, I was panicking big time. Yeah. I began to do what no tough guy, big cheese, blood and guts wrestler, whatever <laughs> un- normal conditions <laughs> even think of, I began screaming, and I do mean screaming for help. <laughs> Vader later took the credit for getting me out, thereby saving my life, but video evidence showed that the big SOB with his back to me was yelling at the crowd, doing his whole who's-the-man gorilla grunting routine. So chat me up. You find yourself going over the top rope. You've got your head in this vice. Vader's hot-dogging, thinking it's just part of the thing. Yeah. What's going on with the referee? Is, does the referee recognize you're in trouble?
1: Referee, this is the surreal situation we we're in. Referee it does not speak English because uh, Nick Patrick had been sent home And I think uh, Pee Wee had been sent home, one due to a death in the family, one due to a knee injury. I can't remember which one was which. And so they they replaced, emergency replacement, French referee speaks no English. So I don't know what the, I can't remember the referees trying to help us. I do know that when, um, when I make my way out of the ring and I get back in, and Leon, seeing that I'm bleeding badly calls a comeback, to his credit, right? That's a great idea. Bleeding guy, call a comeback. And so I block a punch, I throw a punch, and it's there you can see that thing fall off the side of my head. So it's still connected when I was on the mat, even though the blood blood was streaming down. And this is something I talked about in my uh, Hall of Fame induction speech. I said, uh, my, well, I didn't say this part, but I knew from history, as we talked about a little while ago. Doesn't bleed a lot. Doesn't bleed, so now when this thing is just pitter pattering on the blue mats and now my brain goes to that place where i start thinking about how similar uh ricky the dragon steamboat's (laughs) entrance music sounds to listen to the rhythm of the falling rain because there's that pitter patter and one goes listen to the rhythm of the falling rain and the other one goes loves his wife and kids and does the best he can ricky steam but which i will argue is the most badass at this reason. <laughs> with all due respect to the undertaker brother loves his wife and kids um that's what i'm thinking on the ring apron i roll back in leon calls the comeback boom i throw the punch off it goes so now the french referee picks it up doesn't know how he i guess he could have showed it to us But we kept wrestling. I'd love to say we wrestled for another five or six minutes. It was really like another 80 seconds, which is still commendable. Yeah. And by the time uh, the match ends, uh, the referee's already given it to Gary Michael Capetta, the ring announcer. Gary can be seen. And this is where I don't know if he's actually sprinting with an arm's length. He's definitely moving quickly. And he hands that ear, uh, he hands it to, to the nature boy. He says, I have Mick Foley's ear, I have Cactus Jack's ear, what should I do with it? And it was Rick who said we would need to put it on a bag of ice. So, I asked Gary after the fact, what did it look like? He said, it looked like a piece of uncooked chicken with tape on it. So, in my defense, like I taped it up every time I was going to do that move, both ears. And I guess I was wrong when I said I never had the stitches in the left ear, because in my book I said I did. Always more severe on the right hand side though.
2: So you go into the match with tape on your
1: ears. Yeah, I'm taped up behind both ears. But you don't think that would tip the hand as much as running the ropes? I had the long hair. Very few people are going to see it. And besides, we're used, so used to seeing tape on people in a sure. variety of places, I don't think tape on the ear is going to tip it at all, and plus with the long foley hair, nobody's going to see it anyway. Yeah,
2: so this is the same day where Flair says, you're not getting over his baby face, we need to make you a heel, and then he sees your uncooked chicken with tape on it. Um, It is pretty amazing in hindsight to think that they didn't immediately try to turn that into a magazine article. It should have been on the cover of the magazine.
1: First of all, WCW gave me the slide. They said we can never print this. Uh, And yet, for their... um, one of their pay-per-views where they had the old-timers back. Slambury. Slambury. Uh, almost every visual of those old-timers of them bleeding. Yes. And that's where I said, I went, okay, so the new blood, no good. If it's 20 years or older, it was vintage blood. That's okay. But they did. They handed it back to me said, you can do whatever you want with it. We will never print this. And that's like a... Do you still have it? Well, yeah, because we used it for, uh... You should
2: get that framed,
1: uh, hang that on the wall. Uh, well, well, here's the thing about that that photo is it is in the Have a Nice Day book. When I started doing horror conventions, like in 2003, I would get people buying that photo who were not even wrestling fans just because it was cool. And as, uh, I'm trying to think of the guys now, uh, Andrew Banarski, who, uh, was Leatherface in the uh, Texas Chainsaw Rematch uh, remake. He comes looking over at a show called Monster Mania in like 2003. He's looking at the tables, he goes, bro, you know you're the only guy with real blood in his photos. And I went, yeah, I guess I am. How about I mean, that? Yeah, yeah, I guess I am. It's a cool little footnote. Yeah, it's a cool little footnote, but I, it, it was just an exercise in frustration, the whole thing from A, having my you know i'm i'm getting my hopes up that they'll utilize the german i've been working on and that doesn't happen then i'm told that the baby face run that i believe is going well no matter what that rating said because uh you know i always i used to submit things to wcw showing a tale of ratings because you know a pattern is much better than a blitz and I would show like for example during this six-week run that I had we did a six-week angle with me and uh, Dustin Rhodes just on TV and that when I put us on Sunday night's main event that during the course of those six weeks the ratings slowly but steadily were ticking up and uh, I thought that was about as intricate as any of their talent was going to get in pitching why they should you know, several thousand words would go into these things, but then no one wants to read anything that's several thousand words. So I would stick up for why I thought I deserved, you know, I mean, if you came out of the, your negotiation with the same thing you had, that was a victory. Right. Because they were looking to to cut money. Cut. And like, uh, as I, you know, said a couple of weeks ago, the conundrum you were in is you couldn't be a top guy unless you made top guy money. You couldn't make top guy money unless you were a top guy. So even though we talked about the potential for a Cactus Jack Hulk uh, program, probably Hulk was going to be uh, in program the ring. program will flare right away. Oh, yeah, he was only going to be working with those guys who were making the top money because those were the top stars.
2: So the Observer would have this to say of your incident that night. The pressure of the tightened cables was such that his ear was torn completely off and his left ear was split badly, needing more than a dozen stitches to close the cut. Ring announcer Gary Capetta took the right ear and iced it. However, doctors were only able to save about one-third to half of the lower part of the right ear. Jack actually continued the match for another two minutes minutes or so, making a big comeback before doing the planned job, which tickles me, the phrasing, the planned job. uh, did Vader know that the ear came off? Or when
1: did you know? When did he know? Leon, I don't know if he knew the ear came off. He knew I was I- injured. But he saw the blood, yeah. yeah. saw the blood. His ear wasn't off yet. And I don't know if he saw the ear fall. Uh, the referee certainly did. But that was like almost in his uh, ring general DNA to take advantage of something like that. Hey, that's going to be a good pop. Set up a little bit of a comeback. And, uh, and then we went home right after that, you know, a minute and five seconds later, um, which was probably about how much time we would have done anyway. Uh, and then once Leon got his armpit off me, because he did cover me with his armpit, it wasn't, wasn't pleasant, especially in the days when everyone wore hot stuff. That was a tough time to, yeah. tough time for your uh, senses. I reached up, keep in mind, I've had my ear split, you know, at least a dozen times in the past. And I thought, okay, if it was bleeding this much, it must be be pretty bad. And then I was like, whoa, there was a little wave of panic. But at the same time, there's a rush of adrenaline, which happens, you know? Injuries give you a heightened sense of awareness some of the time. And it kicks in that fight or flight reflex. So when I get back to the dressing room, I'm actually like (laughs) wired uh even in the photo that was taken immediately after i have a little gleam in my eye i think the gleam in my eye is there partially because i realize this is a booker's dream this is money like all right maybe they didn't use the uh maybe they didn't use the uh, the german but who's gonna who Nobody's is going to ignore this. this you can't miss this and i just thought me and leon cutting promos about the loss of an ear that's I took be, your hearing, Now I'm going to take your sight, and blah, yeah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's going to be big time, and I don't think the powers that be wanted an angle that was big time. At any point when you're in the back,
2: and, and I know this sounds silly in hindsight, but does part of you think, can they reconstruct my yeah, ear? Yeah, sure.
1: Yeah, I was, thinking, I, I was thinking it could be done, because in the news at that time was that John Wayne Bobbitt fellow, Oh yeah. who had a different body part uh, sewn back on. What I didn't realize is you that... think one.
2: Vader took that one off, too? <laughs> or maybe not. No, no. <laughs> I,
1: I, there was one time Ron Simmons came darn close to having something like that with the ropes. Some, there was a move in the ropes. I was right there, WCW. I don't think Rod minds me it's talking about this unique injury. And then when he takes his supporter off, it's like this... <laughs> It's like this huge slice going around the circumference, and Ron was, oh, I don't want to, you know, I want to avoid sounding like a mom imitating Ron because no one's Ron except Ron. But his big concern was, how am I going to explain this to my wife? Yeah. Yeah, there's no way to explain that and it sounds plausible. So he suffered a severe penile injury <laughs> and the only thing he was worried about was how do, you, get in trouble. how do you explain the unexplainable, whereas I suffer this severe injury and I was kind of on A, I, did, a, I thought they could reconnect it, B, uh, there's part of me that's proud of having finished that match. And see how in the world are they going to deny this money-making device I didn't know until 2013 uh, after my Hall of Fame induction speech um, I'm glad I'm glad I went first because if I'd gone in the middle or at the end I would have looked out and my family would have been gone because my son Mickey is on the spectrum he just he can't handle crowds that long So I was very thankful to go on first. I was able to enjoy the rest of the show. And uh, I did not know that Booker and his brother, Stevie Ray, were on their first tour with uh, WCW. And he said, I walk in and I said, I think I just lost my fucking ear. Bang, bang. And so when I heard that, I was like, well, first of all, that is an appropriate place to drop your rare Yes. right? Yes, yes. and, and the thing about the bang-bang is like, man, I had the commitment, even when injured, to get that catchphrase in, in front of the boys. And not only did I get it in front of the boys, but later on, years, I mean, 2005, so we're talking in, in 2000, we're 11 talking years 11 later. years later, 2005, uh, I'm dying to get Adam West uh, to sign a photo. But I've heard that he won't sign things that Bert Ward Robin has signed. Uh, they're 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 separated, not just different tables, but there's like a wall and you know in between them. And uh, but I saw people coming. I thought, when's when's the next chance? This guy was super over with my uh, with my with me and my brother with my older kids. Now my younger kids. I'm gonna give it a try. And I brought up the book somebody had the book so i could show him that in 2000 and oh no, 1990 uh let me get my 90s right in 96 that my kids went trick-or-treating and not with the current black back man oh, but the cool. blue and gray the way it was meant to be adam west damn it and that's what i wanted to show him and when i walk up there uh his manager goes whoa way you sold quite a few of these didn't you I said, yeah it did do well and now Adam West grabs the book not paying attention to the part that I had you know, earmarked with uh, him in it. And he goes, I think I lost my fucking ear. Bang, bang. And he looks at me and goes, you've got a very unique writing style. You capture the listener right away. <laughs> so who knew in that dressing room in Munich that I would be making an impression on Adam West
2: that's awesome.
1: Eleven years later, right?
2: It's too bad you didn't have the bat belt that night. Maybe you could have just sewed it back on. So an MSG on March sixteenth, there's a Vader and Taker casket match. And of course she come out of the casket during the match, put the claw on Taker, and help Vader get the win. I I take it this is like the ultimate rib. If we can't put him under the ring, let's stick his ass in the casket.
1: <laughs> well, I would have found a way to get from underneath the ring into the casket. That was part of the magic of WWE. So I would not have been a casket for five hours. Or, well, maybe I did. Oh No, no, I would have had to have been under the ring the whole day because that was the rib on me, right? No reason to break that rib just yet. I only found out like maybe 2014 that that didn't have to be that way. And that was where I... Did started.
2: they give you like a little mattress pad down there? Well, I, I believe there was a blue. I believe there was a blue. So there's a blue mat that go around the
1: ring. Blue mat and uh, you know, something to pee in if you need it. And you have a monitor under there. And then all the little toys, you know, uh, Kendo sticks and chairs and those type of things are under there. But it's the rib on me I'm under there for five or six hours. And and
2: I, let me give context here for a minute. This is pre smartphones. Yeah. There's nothing to do under there. Right, nothing. There's no light. It's not like you can read a book. Right. And it's not like you can, you know, scroll Twitter. You're just listening to guys pound away at the mat and fans hoot and holler for
1: hours on end. Yeah. And the the sound under the air is almost deafening. Yes. and So do you wear a headset? No. No. You just you try to pee before you go out there you hope you won't have to pee i was heard, i was told that a kurt henning rib was when there were like four guys under the ring and he brought the fart spray which is just you know our t- shit <laughs> 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 yeah, it's yeah. real he
0: may, he may
1: <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but I, I didn't i didn't have fart spray with me and i was by myself under there it would have been nice to have some company uh, I, I, Horsnoggle fell asleep once, right? Did, uh, probably. He spent a great amount of time under there. I'm not sure if they... I think he fell asleep and missed it once. Did, did they smart him up to the rib, or did he have to go under there for I don't hours? I think he's finding out right now. That he did not, didn't need to be that way. Yeah, yeah. I didn't need, need to be that way. But when I was under there, I was under there for a while. And I don't care who you are, how tough you are. It's not in our nature to feel comfortable while getting buried alive. And it's not in our nature to feel comfortable in a coffin.
2: Yeah,
1: And so we do both of them. Given my choice, I'd rather be in a coffin than getting buried alive. Yeah. Um, But it's still an uncomfortable thing, especially when the boys in the back play a rib on you and don't let you out for minutes. So it was, it's not, it's, it's less than ideal. Yeah, it's less than ideal. So Taker
2: gets the advantage uh, as Vader and Paul run off. You get put in the casket, rolled into the back, uh, and then Syracuse is uh, the go-home raw, and the scene with this infamous Bret Hart promo after the Sid Cage match that everybody was talking about. Um, as a reminder, well, the people know what happened, but Navy Boy beat Vader by the DQ after you interfere. It's a big brawl. Owen's involved, and now we're, we're on a... What
1: was the Brett what was the Brett interview?
2: So if you recall it was a cage match and afterwards they they go to commercial, they come back. Sid law Sid won. Brett was was cheated. So he flips out. He pushes Vince McMahon oh, yeah, down yeah, yeah. and he, you know, says, goddamn into the microphone and this is bullshit and blah blah blah. And I mean it was a pretty strong promo with a lot of foul language and there was an overrun and apparently it was all approved and blessed. But I think you could go back and you could say that Monday Night Raw is probably the first time that attitude was really a thing. Yeah, Maybe they weren't yeah, calling yeah, it that yeah. yet. But you didn't have Brett, this you know all-time babyface at that point, saying GD, and, and no, that wasn't a thing. And, and here it happened. Uh, but it was also almost an acknowledgment that Vince is the boss. He's yeah. not just an right. announcer. Right, right. Uh, And then Stone Cold came on the monitor, or the the jimbotron, if I remember, and he said something like, Brad, if you've been screwed as many times as you said, you'd have struck oil by now, and here comes Sid. But it
1: was a nice way to build WrestleMania. Yeah, and it's a nice way to get the consummate champion into a feud that doesn't revolve around a title. Yes. So that you have the title, you know, between Undertaker and Sid, which is billed as the main event, you clearly have this great feud with Brett, who is the most beloved wrestler in the company, against the shooting star. I won't say shooting star, because Steve, once he got there, yeah. stayed there. But you have this rocket taking off in Steve Austin. And now I'll argue that uh, at least in the top five great Bret Hart matches is a match that has nothing to do with the title, but everything to do with, uh, uh, with pride.
2: Yeah, and it gave you like a little tease of what was to come with the big double turn. Yeah. You got to see this harder edge of rep.
1: Shamrock's shorts were pretty tight that night, weren't yes, they? Like, Not. A, I, did he look? take a look at the shorts that Sean wore as with, a guest with, referee? With, yeah. say, nobody's going to outdo me when it comes to the short shorts. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you wear trunks and that's fine. But if your shorts aren't down almost to your knees, we're offended. you were offended. And it's like post eighties basketball where everyone wore the short shorts. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Ken's wearing some tight he's wearing some tight shorts. Uh, but and he's wearing no sleeves on his referee shirt, That's right? That's correct. But he is the acknowledged baddest man, you know, he was the world's most dangerous man. Yeah. He play, him being in that is a big deal. And you've got the double turn with, um, Steve and, and Brett and one of the great WrestleMania matches of all time, uh, which is, uh, like you said, maybe not even the semi main event by local Chicago standards. It was third from the top. Yeah. But in my mind, it's the real main event. Yeah.
2: Well, by now, you know, this episode is sponsored by Belushi. Let's talk about sex, shall we? remember the days when you're always ready to go well now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed listen up it's bluechew.com bluechew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as viagra and cialis and levitra but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost take these anytime day or night so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises And the process is simple, y'all. You just sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part. Man, it's all done online. That means no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, no waiting in line at the pharmacy. BlueChew's tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped directly to your door, all in a discreet package. BlueChew wants to help you have better sex. So discover your options at BlueChew.com. Chew it and do it dude love would be proud seriously this is a home run they're a day one sponsor for us here on the program and you know why it really works if you haven't tried it already what are you waiting for and how about this we got a special deal for our listeners try blue chew free when you use our promo code foley at checkout just pay the five dollar shipping that's bluechew.com. the promo code is foley to receive your first month free visit blue for more details and important safety information and we thank blue chew for sponsoring today's podcast Uh, Let's talk about your first visit with Creative Services. You're driving to New York City to get fitted for the mask, and you're met with changes from the original pitch and drawing. At this point still, it doesn't have a name, but the mask is different. It's evolved. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Were you involved in any of those changes, or were you
1: more dictated to, hey, this is the one now? Once it changed from the metallic look to the uh, leather look, uh, then I I didn't have any say in that. That was because Stanley uh, Sherman felt like the uh, metal mask, it's not practical and it's really going to bind me. It's not going to move with my face. So when I did go in there, uh, very few people know, especially because I just, you know, I've I've ordered two different masks from from two different parts of the world so I can do my cameos as man in a mankind mask, which is what I am. So uh, even if they own the copyright, I'm just man in a mankind mask, right? Uh, but these guys do a great job and their leather isn't made to fit the contours of my face. Stanley's was, um, so I had to do the plaster casting, you know, with the, we got the photos of me with the, what um, month do you think that was? This was probably December of 95. I say December of 95, because in those photos I was clean shaven. And the only time I was clean shaven was when I was in... ECW, and I was systematically removing everything the fans liked about me. I say so that was the only reason that the Cactus Jack showed up without the beard, because I was systematically removing everything you liked. And I would later go on to do that as Dude Love. Sure, uh, put in the front these the top front teeth, um, and we, we we did some pretty creative videos with Paul. Uh, even when I was there for, uh, at American Adventures outside Atlanta from Noel's birthday party. You know, we're filming little vignettes on the, the crazy bus where I'm showing <laughs> visitors to guess my ear, you know. And, oh my God, this guy's it. I turn around, go, yeah, that's hardcore. And I'm with my wife and she's putting me over. Uh, so that's why I was clean shaven. And that's why I know that, uh, we went for the original mask fitting in December of 95.
2: So when you leave after figuring out what your new mask is going to look like, you head to a seamstress, uh, and then you're back to Stanford again. And I guess that's where you and Vince talk about the mandible claw. But when you're with the seamstress, do you know exactly, I mean, did the look change at all? And you mentioned earlier the symbol on the back. Tell us the story of how the symbol came. To be. Yeah.
0: You
1: know, when, uh, they gave me the parameter, which is I'm in, I'm in Brown, Brown. brown. Except for the black boots. And uh, when Bruce heard that I was wearing the Mankind gimmick, it was actually just me trying the boots out, trying to get comfortable in the boots, having a match with the boots Did they
2: dictate that you needed the lifts, or is that a fully call?
1: I I wanted the lifts because I wanted to be closer to the Undertaker's height. Like I said, I was a legit 6'4". And at 6'6", is when you start becoming a big dude, right? You know, there's a lot of... It's That's like, the Hulk Hogan Billy uh, guy. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it was uh, a Bruiser Bedlam who used to talk about uh, being a five plate man. He'd say, The city's full of four plate men. Five plates would be 545. Pla- the city's, pl- city's full of four plate men. Five plate man. So the, the, the city was full of, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this analogy i have no idea where (laughs) i refresh my memory
2: so we're talking about (laughs) the idea that you're going to be in brown but now you're wearing lifts
1: yeah oh yeah okay city's full of six foot four men six foot six like this is you know there's a definite six three six two to six four you're tall uh so tall that you know he stands about six foot four all the downtown ladies call him treetop lover this is bad bad leroy brown six four to me Great songwriter, Jim Croce. 6'4 doesn't qualify you as a treetop lover. Six six does.
2: <laughs>
1: and I felt like I needed those two extra inches, and then I realized after walking around, I attend a couple concerts that way. It's kind of cool to be 6'6, but I realized it's really difficult to move.
2: I was going to say, from a wrestling standpoint, right. you all yeah. your ankle, right? Uh, yeah,
1: it's going to damage your ankle. You can't move around as well. WW WWE ring is challenging enough. Uh, Without lifts on, and I realized they didn't hire me because I was six, six, you know, I had the potential to be six six. They hired me thinking I was five ten, I think. Um, And so I was like, no, I'm going to give up. I sent it back to Bucky Palermo, the referee outside of Pittsburgh, who did a lot of the boots at that time, and he took. So the
2: lifts were built into the boot. They
1: were built into the boot, like Herman Munster uh, or members of Kiss, and then we had them removed. And then I did I did wrestle with the non-lift boots for that last match with Mikey.
2: So I'm, I'm just curious from a design standpoint of the actual gear, because we're talking about you visiting a seamstress. Yeah. WWE's footing the bill for this?
1: They are. They bought, they purchased the, or maybe they took it out of my check. I can't remember. I can't remember if I paid for the first two shirts and two masks, whether they took it out of my check, whether it was given to me. I don't, don't I was know. just
2: getting to the point of how would you have, I guess, How how was it communicated to him that you wanted lifts you told WWE or probably? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I say
1: and when it came to the symbol on the back you know, I had uh, Come up with the idea that uh, you know the leather around we didn't we did not we real later realized real leather Wasn't the best idea and uh, the subsequent mankind shirts, which I think there was only another two or four were not made out of uh, leather but I just looked at the back, and I thought, that's a lot of brown there. It's a lot of empty brown. And I asked about a symbol, and I just basically combined uh, um, uh, and uh, – what is the name of the, the type of cr- – Irish cross? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Irish yeah. cross with an X. Okay. Um, and it looked mysterious. Like It wasn't like people well, – that's an Irish cross with an X. It looked like something – But you made completely up. Completely new, unusual – it's a little bit foreboding and uh, There were some things where I, I mean I had some other ideas uh, And then we came out with the loose-fitting shirt still gonna show off the Foley guns, right? Uh, I worked hard on those guns, although they never really uh, uh, Never indicate the look never indicated that I did but I did work hard uh, To get those 17-inch pythons as looking as good as they could and so with the leather and the symbol, a little symbol here on the left breast, big symbol on the back, brown spandex, black boots. yeah, I was uh, I was ready for my premiere.
2: What about the actual claw, the actual apparatus you wore?
1: Yeah, yeah, Some the, they made me that in uh, creative. They gave me the the, the, the uh, thing I would wear.
2: Did you have a different vision for it?
1: No, it was, that was I was good with that. Yeah, it was it was good.
2: going to pop up just 2 weeks before the pay-per-view. You return on July 11th, 2007. That's a draft episode of Monday Night Raw in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, and everyone remembers this episode for when Vince Vince McMahon blew himself up in a limousine, and what I believe was also Vince McMahon Appreciation Night. What do you remember of this night?
1: <laughs> I was I was really upset about it. Uh I was upset about it. Uh, I w- we're, I know once we talk about the match, we'll jump forward to that next day, which was one of the you know, most tragic days in wrestling history. But before those events, and we're talking about the Benoit events, uh, began to unfold, I had about a 45-minute uh, talk slash shouting match with Mr. McMahon because I hated that angle. Uh, because at the time, I was doing quite a bit with... Uh, Uh, injured service members, and uh, I was always working with uh, kids who were facing challenges and, you know, including um, imminent deaths. And I remember uh, him, it was crazy, (laughs) because going back to the episode where I did kiss Vince's butt, right, following the I Quit match with Rick, I, I We're, we're live. Uh, we're, we're backstage, but it's a live interview, so we can't cut. And I called him Vince, and he said, What did you call me? And I thought, is, is this a trick question. I said, Vince? And he looked at me. I didn't realize that you were supposed to refer to him as Mr. McMahon when he's on camera. So when I have the conversation with Vince after the day after uh, Vengeance, which we will get to talking about, and I know yeah. I'm, we're kind of all over the place asking people to bear with us. I'll say I tell you, he gave me forty five minutes of time, and a lot of it was yelling. I remember saying, "You know who does? You know who does think you're dead? A child who's you know who who is um, I don't he, child facing challenges and the prospect of death. You know who else thinks you're dead? a U.S. service member who lost both her legs. These are people coming up to me asking about you. And he goes, Mick, uh, Vince McMahon didn't die. Mr. McMahon died. Oh. And I went, do you think our fans know the difference? He goes, of course they do. And I'm thinking back to where I said, called him Vince. And clearly, I did not know the difference. Like, right. I wasn't aware there was a Vince McMahon, <laughs> a Mr. McMahon. And I, I, and this, is, when I saw the full gospel tabernacle come in, uh, you know, they were supposed to be celebrating his death, like you're going to have a, a, a certain death service, you know, memorial service uh, there. Uh, was it San Antonio or was it, uh, we had the pay-per-view in Houston. That's right. So I, I don't know if we were in a San Antonio or Corpus Christi the next day. I think it may have been corpus christi uh and i was like uh, i i can't i don't miss i don't know if i demanded that i leave but he said i there was probably more along the lines of make if you're not comfortable you don't have to be here and so i took off and i missed out on all the you know the tragedy that unfolded as um okay. do you, you want to go do you want yeah. to go back to vengeance and we'll cook
2: you know Yeah, yeah, we'll get but you're all right. It was in Corpus Christi, Texas, the very next day, June twenty-fifth. The, the the thing that uh that made me laugh about the Mr. McMahon, Vince McMahon thing. Do <laughs> you recall way back when Paul Kogan was suing Gawker, there was a discussion. Yes. Something he said on the radio.
1: Okay.
2: He, he goes on Bubba the Love Sponge back in the day. Of course, that was a big piece of the story. And Sure. There's a conversation where he's on the show, the radio show, shock jock show, and he says that Hulk Hogan has a certain length piece of mail equipment. <laughs> right. And then when he's quizzed about that on the stand, he has to say, I do not have a certain length piece of equipment. And he says his real name, Terry Balea's piece of equipment is not so-and-so size, but Hulk Hogan's is. <laughs> and it tickled me then, and it tickles me now. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. McMahon is dead. Vince McMahon is alive. Oh, <laughs> man. Something that Mr. Belea maybe
1: doesn't. <laughs> Amazing. The closest I can come to that is Mick Foley can't sing. Dude love can't sing. So the change of character, that's a little bit different than the piece of equipment. I don't even know how that's physiological and possibly, you know, it's not possible, but that was
2: how, how Ric Flair was billed as being six, two or six, one, you know, five ten or whatever.
1: Yeah. I thought he was a six footer. Wasn't he? I
2: I don't think so. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Maybe he, uh, with the Mick Foley route and he shrunk a little, I don't know. (laughs) The, uh, the Vengeance uh, show here is subtitled Night of Champions Before it becomes its own pay-per-view the following year Right, And uh, on the Raw where you returned They set it up by saying anyone still on the Raw roster At the end of the night Who was a current or former world champion Would be eligible for an yeah. open WWE Championship match of Vengeance Of course you come out Announce yourself for the match So that's kind of weird in hindsight <laughs>
1: Man, yeah, yeah, it, it is. a little strange. Um, the 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 line that resonated with me is, um, uh, "Does he have any real friends?" Yeah. Uh, because I would always been told, like he's you know so busy and immersed in work, he doesn't have any hobbies. You know, work is his hobby. So uh, I I have to believe he's um, you know it's a tough transition. I'm sure he sees his grandchildren all the time. Uh, I'm lucky. Uh, that I'll be uh, one of the hosts of the new season of uh, uh, Most Wanted Treasures. I don't even know if I'm allowed to announce that, but uh, me, Lita, and Booker are going to be hosting that show. And uh, because my mom only lives an hour and a half away from Stanford, uh, where some of the shooting is done at the warehouse, uh, I'll I'll, I'll reach out to Vince and see if he wants to get together uh, for a lunch or something and uh yeah i'd like to keep in touch with him you know he wasn't a perfect man but man uh, conrad without vince's belief in me we're not doing this podcast right right like no one's no one's doing a podcast with me based on having a, a fairly good run from 91 to 94 <laughs> wcw uh so i owe a lot to vince he wasn't a perfect man i still maintain he was a great man uh with a couple of uh flaws. And, uh, uh, so it's really interesting to look at that. And it's interesting to see how often I was referring to him as Vince McMahon, not knowing right. that by that point he wanted to be Mr. McMahon exclusively.
2: So when the show goes off the air. Vince McMahon has been blown up and as yep. we said, it creates, you know, a reaction unlike any before. There's a famous story that Donald Trump even called the office about it and, the next week in Richmond, Virginia, this is where the Amaga Squash happens. You open the show and yeah. do an insincere promo saying, boy, uh, in hindsight, with Vince being dead and all, my comments last week kind of came off kind of bad. And then here comes Andy <laughs> Orton. What do you remember about this?
1: Nothing. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> because I think because I was so upset about the Vince thing, uh, that these other uh, anything past that is not something i would have committed to memory
2: we're talking about the beginning of mankind and what made me want to cover this last week is you told really a pretty interesting story about your time with Vader before you even got going with the mankind yeah, character yeah, yeah. Uh, so we'll just pick it up from there. But before we do, I want to mention you grew up in, as New York is sort of the home territory, if you will, of the World Wrestling Federation. And you would pretend to be a wrestler with your friends. And mm-hmm. I mean, you had really always dreamed of being not just a professional wrestler, but for the WWF, right?
1: Yeah, the WWF was what I grew up on. Uh, as a matter of fact, for years, we did not get the... Uh, w uh wcw show when it was the nwa show even when almost everyone else got it for some reason in my county uh my cable system did not get it so i wasn't even exposed to anything else i think until 83 when southwest championship wrestling showed up on usa you know for a short run and then there was that one show that covered it was a wwe show this people didn't know that vince was intending to cherry pick the the best talent and go national but for a while it was like wow i get to see these guys from the different parts of the country that i've only read about in the bill after magazines and the George Napoleon give george's props too sure. right? george and bill were the two guys the two editors in chief and um so i yeah i was had my sights firmly set on w you know, wwf
2: so uh just to add a frame of reference I, I don't think a lot of our younger listeners know uh what's the tie-in with maybe modern wrestling and southwest i mean i don't think a lot of people know that's tully blanchard's dad right that's right yeah yeah it sure was it's just uh, such a small world to think even now here in 2022 tully's on tv isn't that crazy it's yeah when well, i saw him
1: in 83 he was the red rocker yeah tcb uh there were some good guys there and uh, but it was bloody to, uh southwest championship wrestling is pretty bloody that's something I, that you only got on rare occasions in wwf
2: so of course everybody knows the story you know of jimmy snuka and don morocco and your love of that but did you know before you went to that show that you wanted to be a professional wrestler or was it
1: at that <clears throat> show i'd wanted to be a wrestler for a couple of years so when i was 10 or 11 i wasn't necessarily dreaming of becoming a wrestler i just do that my brother and i loved wrestling and we weren't particularly close. So to find something we both liked, and we were drawn to, like, the hokier moves, the, uh... <laughs> that's chop, the oblique chop. Like, I don't think I've seen an oblique chop before or since. can't even remember who did it. It was one of these things where the guys stomping the feet, you know, while they chopped the obliques, and that became a mainstay in what we, we would do, and we'd have matches. I think I, I told the story in 97... With Jim Ross, where I backdropped my brother and he broke his nose, and uh, my mom came in and said, "No more wrestling," but she didn't say, "No more dreaming." There you and go. Said as mankind, yeah, that was that was pretty significant.
2: So for years, the WWF didn't really entertain bringing you in, and and I think it's even been written about that um, you made a, a pretty consistent effort there with JJ Dillon and others. Uh, sort of run us through
1: what that was like. I think the first time I uh, placed a call. Was when my parents received a message from Pat Patterson, who was—he uh, was—I don't know if he's head of creative, but he was up there. Up there. Well, I think Vince was always head of creative. And I get a call, and the first thing I said to my parents, because I'm—I got my feelers out there. I'm thinking this is—this is a rib, right? Because I was probably—I was still a college student. I think I think it was 21 years old, maybe maybe just turned 22 um uh, but no, you was, knew that Pat was high up. Yeah, yeah, sure, okay. cuz I'd been to a couple of shows um and I'd I'd, I'd done enhancement work. You know, I did four right. or five enhancement matches with Hercules, with the Bulldogs, Killer Bees, Kamala, and I think that I think that was it for me as far as being uh, um that guy uh, getting beaten up on TV. But I knew Pat. I could I, you know, even before I well, I knew what a booker was by that time, but I would see him Either uh, congratulate or not reprimand in a constructive way. Talent when they came in, you know, Pat had a great eye and ear for that type of thing. Um, but the first thing I asked my parents, sensing a rib, was, "Did he uh, did he mess up his plurals and singulars? Right? You already knew that. <laughs> I already knew that. And my my dad goes, "Oh, his English was terrible." And so, oh man, oh great! it got to be the right guy. So I called up probably three or four times. This is a Cactus Jack returning Pat Patterson's call, and I received no call, no, no, no return call. And it was like three months later when Shane Douglas was like, "Hey, did you get my call?" It's like, what call? He goes, yeah, I called your house, pretended to be Pat Patterson. Oh, man. Uh, I I called it the always funny rib of making someone feel like their dreams are coming (laughs) true. But now if I'd listened to the message, if my parents had played me the message, I would have understood it was a rib. Hello, this is is Pat Patterson's. It was Shane literally messing up every single word, every single and plural. So that was not in the cards. And then when I got to WCW... Uh, it was going good, but uh, I think by the time '92 rolled around, um, you, you know, um, I was still being used well. But I just wanted to see. But I wasn't being offered anything in the way of a raise, you know. Right. So there was still a world of difference between I, what I was making, which was still good, $150,000. 1991 was uh, pretty yeah, good. That's pretty good. Still, I'd argue it's still still yeah. pretty good. Um but, you know, there was a big disparity between the guys I was working with and what they were making, what I was making. So I just wanted to see if I, you know, what the market had, you know, what the market bore. And I would be dismissed within a minute, I'd say. It was just a minute. Oh, you know, we're not currently looking for any talent. And then I've said in my shows, like, I would sit and watch Monday Night Raw and I'd see the debut of people who I thought I may have been better than. Like, right. You know talk about Mantor and and, and Hokey, you know, bad gimmicks at that time, really yeah. bad gimmicks. Kevin Nash said uh, people they were a pe- you were a thing, you were a job, vocation. Occupational you were gimmick. an occupation. You know, that was almost across the board or not almost across the board, but it was a big percentage of guys out there who were occupations.
2: So when you were talking about in WCW and you felt like there was maybe some some income disparity if you yeah. will uh Kevin Nash and Scott Hall have always referred to what they called the as sting money and it was about the 600,000 range does that sound about right
1: Yeah I thought yeah I thought That was the St- high watermark there. I thought Sting may have been making a little like 7 in the 700s yeah. but yeah that was that was the big money and there were other guys who were making 3 or 400 a little guy here may, here they're making 500 and then when uh Kevin and uh Kevin and uh, Scott came in, and then Hogan, you know, that bar got pushed considerably yeah. higher, you know. And that's when our friend Barry Bloom came in, you know, with the favored nations clause. So if somebody else picked up more than that, you were automatically factored. I was never automatically factored and I was never part of that. But uh, that was good for everybody, because yeah. that's what placed pressure on Vince to start offering the guaranteed contracts. Uh, I think the payoffs went up considerably. And so going back to what you and I were talking about last week, ultimately, ultimately, whatever's good for the men and women in the business, I believe, is good for the business, including WWE.
2: Yeah, no, I would agree. I- I'm curious from your perspective, you know, as a performer... You know, sure, everybody has goals that they want to achieve professionally and financially. But was it defeating when you realized, wait a minute, I'm in the same match as Sting and he's 5X? Is that the (laughs) genesis of the call?
1: No, I think it was more creatively. uh, More, I think, going back, I can't pinpoint uh, the way I felt in September of 1992 or who I was working with. I was really grateful to uh, have the job I did. It was more the frustration of... Feeling like I said that uh, the carpet's going to be, you know, pulled out from underneath me. Uh, I think a lot of guys have felt that, you know, where you especially
2: couldn't... in WCW in that era. Probably.
1: In WCW in that era, yeah, they had, they had kind of worked themselves into a situation. The conundrum they faced, or the talent faced, is that you couldn't make top money unless you were a top guy. So of course you're striving to be a top guy, but you couldn't be a top guy unless you were making top money.
2: You've heard Mick talk about it for years. A G one Mick and I absolutely love a G one. We start each and every day with a simple scoop. That's it. That's all we need. One single scoop and a cup of water and buddy, we're getting 75 different high quality ingredients. It's going to hook you up and give you all the key daily nutrients. And it's going to go ahead and support everything you need your energy, your focus, your strength, your clarity. This is just a a no brainer to me. Think of it as like your foundational nutrition product. you know listen we all get busy and we wind up well i didn't want to do this for lunch but i don't feel like i have an option or well i know i need to dude this is easy just one scoop every single day you're making sure you're taking care of your most valuable asset you you cover all your bases you're looking for better gut health you want to boost in energy you want to support that immune system maybe you hate taking pills or vitamins Maybe you just want a supplement that tastes good. I drink mine every single morning. My wife does hers before she even does her coffee. It makes her feel unstoppable on her way to the gym. And I think it gives me more focus at work. I feel like I'm more productive and I don't have that crash in the afternoon. I feel like I'm more productive all day long. We started this back even before the pandemic started. My wife did, but when the pandemic started, man, she had me start doing it. We've done it every day since we are huge fans. I think you will be too. Even our daughters are into it now. Morgan's actually taking some down to Tuscaloosa with her with every single serving, setting yourself up for success. I just can't recommend it enough. By the way, you don't have to take our word for this. Just go look up their reviews. These cats have thousands of five-star reviews. It's the real deal. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free 1-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go right now to drinkag1.com/foley. That's drinkag1.com/foley. Check it out. You'll be glad you did. Yeah. So uh, again, the date is March 16th, 1994. We're going to do a whole episode on Vader, I'm sure sometime, but this is not your first Vader match. Yeah. I mean, this is probably match 100 or more. I mean, you had no telling how many matches with him. Did you guys have like a standard match? What well, we've often heard, you know, from, from other folks who would say, and I think Jim Ross even tells a story on his podcast that he once heard Jack Briscoe and Harley race talking about a match. Maybe it was Dory and Harley, but as they're getting dressed, they said, you know, something like, should we do Chicago or new Orleans? Because they both knew, all right, this is the type of match we yeah, do there. Yeah, and yeah, did you have a routine like that with Vader?
1: Yeah. Mm. The routine was Leon beats the hell out of me, and I, <laughs> I fight for my life, for real. That's what it felt like. Leon called real, real, very realistic uh, match as the heel, and he was free. He, 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 I wrote this in Leon's uh, uh, book. Underrated book, by the way. They did a it good is, job. Yeah, the book. guy did a good job, and I told him, "Wow, man, you must have really hung in there because Leon." Uh, You know, Leon could be a a handful. Um,
2: Grumpy every now and again. He could be grumpy,
1: yeah, he could be grumpy. And so I thought the writer uh, did a really really good job in working with Leon, and they caught him at that time period where he only had the two months, two years, sorry, two years to live. And by the time the book came out, Leon wasn't with us anymore. Um, So I wouldn't say that we had a match. There was a pattern to the match, which is, he's going to, basically, I, I have to try eventually to knock down this impenetrable wall. All right. So I said in the, um, in the forward that, uh, man, nobody was a more convincing wall. And you could knock it down piece by piece if you were willing to work for it. And if you weren't, he was going to shut you down and eat you up. So it really forced me, because I'm not a naturally aggressive person, to turn that up a couple notches and fight from underneath. And then when the time was right, Leon would take bumps for me. And uh, I loved working with him. I considered it like my Fraser Ali, especially when I did not think that I would ever reach heights. Yeah, you know, I did not think there'd be a WWE run. Uh, you I,
2: felt this is as good as it gets. Yeah, cuts.
1: and I and I felt like when I was in uh, my big pay-per-view main event with him in October '93, I could tell by the way the show had been written uh, moving forward that I wasn't part of the mix. So I like oh, here's my last hurrah. So uh, when I was in New Orleans doing my show, I talked about how I took you know I was I was uh, you know near the crowd by the guardrail. And back in the days before cell phone cameras took somebody's very real camera and used it on Leon and you know When you use something like that up close you got to bring it so that thing was in pieces when I handed it back Probably not the happiest guy in the world. I just ruined his quality camera But then I turned I wheeled around like this just with my head and scanned the crowd and as I did that section by section got on their feet and came alive and I remember thinking this is the height of my career but also the lowest point of my career because I will never reach this height again. That's the way I was thinking in that match. So I never thought that... I always felt in a way like the angle was booked to fail or at least booked not to succeed because he was already in the next program with Sid. There was no intangibles out there, but what if they tear the house down? Um, And we had that horrible build, which was the... uh, Lost in Cleveland, so <laughs> so they uh, Eric Bischoff mercifully pulled the plug on that like eight eight weeks into a 12 week uh, run, and then they just had me come out and I acted like it had all been a swerve to uh, you know to to get inside Leon's head, and we ended up having a great match. Uh, and I ended up to, that's where I took the the bump on his back, which was specifically designed to end my career. And I remember being so disappointed that it hadn't. And at the time, my Lloyds of London was not, it wasn't like a major uh, windfall. It may have seemed like, it would have been like what I made for a year and a half. But I was so frustrated by the whole process that I did want out. I did want out of What the, was your backup plan? Uh, I don't know if I had one at that time. You know, we were living pretty frugally. We had a nice little house, but it was you know nothing special. I don't know that I had a backup plan, Conrad. You were just frustrated in that moment. I was just so frustrated that this business that I had you know given so much to uh, in some ways that had allowed me to live out my dreams wasn't loving me back like I like I thought it should.
2: Did any um, you know these days we hear a lot of wrestlers talk to the younger generation and say, oh you don't want to do this and you don't want to do that. Did anybody come to you in that era and say, mm, I don't know about that hangman spot, Cactus? Um,
1: no, I'd say unlike the, the stuff that I did, the elbow and the backdrops on the floor where I'd be warned and reprimanded, I, I think, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, by basis of Robert Fuller, ooh, good old school spot, Jacko, that it, it, they liked the idea that somebody was doing one of their, their spots. Uh, on the... Um, uh, my A&E biography, Rick mentioned that uh, Dory Funk Jr. used to do that with his foot. Uh, Adrian Adonis used to do a, he used to get knocked out, take a clothesline backwards with both his arms in there and get both arms done. But I've been with Like Andre. People. Yeah, like Andre. Well, but differently. And I, uh, Andre would get him tied up like this. Yes. Adrian would take the clothesline over the top rope. Oh, I see. And come up. And I remember years and years ago being with some good uh, pros and all trying to figure out how Adrian did it and we c- we couldn't get it, we couldn't get it. So mine is, you know, I say it's simple in that, he, this is what you do, second rope over the top rope, but it's a matter of timing, it's a matter of being willing to hang in there enough to, long enough to make the move meaningful and then you got us, you have to sell it. Uh, I will come out of my easy chair and drive down to whatever arena <laughs> someone is performing at. If I see someone no selling the hangman because it's uh, yeah, it's it's believable, right? Sure. It's, it should be believable. Uh, there's a lot I've got a believable injury to show for it, and you just want to make sure people treat that respectfully.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but yeah, that was that was a that was a I didn't use it so much. That it wasn't a surprise, but it was there for for me on a special occasion, which I thought that night in Germany was. So you had done this move for years at that point, including, it sounds like, Continental because you mentioned the Fullers. Yeah, yeah. Did you do it in world class? Uh, I did it in world class uh, because Chris Adams had seen me do it when uh, Watts was running those uh, shows. Uh, so Chris loved the move. I did it in continental. I did it in world class. Uh, I'm not sure if I did it in my first run with WCW, but I used it many times, especially at house shows. Yeah. At house shows, it was a great house show pop. And looking back on it, it's like, well, should I have been, you know, ha- a great house show pop versus a four hour emergency room stay? Like, nah, and looking back on it, probably not a good move, but. You know, when I was working with guys like Steamboat, who had worked with the best in the world, like I wanted something that I could do, especially given that I, you know, I didn't have the uh, gas tank that uh, some of the guys that he worked with uh, had. You know, I'm not- notably I'm thinking of Rick. Sure. And uh, and I didn't want to disappoint Ricky. Ricky, when I was working with him, had injured ribs too, that we were working around. And so I was trying to have good matches that would you know live up to Steamboat's standards, and that make was, an impression. Yeah, that was one of the uh, one of the moves that I would throw in. So you mentioned
2: a four-hour emergency room visit. Was that protocol if you got one of, if you felt
1: one of those splits in your ear? You know you're going to the ER if it was bad enough. If it was bad enough, uh, or it might just depend on, you know, who What I could was, they do at that point? I'm not saying that to be silly, but what is there to do with that st- They stitch it up. I see. Yeah. So it was usually, I'd say in the 12 to 16 stitches range. Oh, my. So I think he could say, well, look, you know, uh, I probably should have taken that item off the menu. <laughs> so you slept on your left
2: side that night. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, but the, the difference between going to the emergency room and not going to the emergency room might not be based on the wound itself, but might be based on whether or not you were taking off for the next town that night if I you were see. riding with someone. So ice and uh, peroxide, whatever you could find, uh, new skin burned, uh, rubbing alcohol burned, peroxide bubbled up, uh, and then sometimes they would, I, I would tend to it myself. Sometimes Gary Michael Capetta's mom would tend to it. Sometimes a nurse backstage would do a little something, and sometimes it was bad enough I'd go to the ER. Did have a bump uh, in mind if there was ever a cell two with me and Undertaker. Really? Yeah. I did What would that have OK, so keep the gimmicked cell in mind. This was around 2009, 2010. I was thinking, man, you know, I if I and if I had come back to WWE at 250 and hadn't had the head injuries, like maybe I would have pushed for that. <laughs> but I, you know, when I came back, I was heavy and just wasn't in the cards. Uh, here comes and I took this, the same bump I took with Big Show at Mania '99. You know, same bump I took with Leon White, but we did it on the wooden ramp, which should have should have should have been the. Last you wrote in your time. book. You thought that would be it. I thought it'd be it, and I yeah. was trying to cash in on my Lloyd's of London policy. Yeah, couldn't believe that I wasn't, and I was definitely hurting, but not as injured as I thought I would be. But essentially, when people see that bump, you know, the one I did with Big Show. Big Show was four hundred and yeah. I'm on his back, and there's no magic there. If there's a tra- if there's a secret to it, it is you just got to keep your bodies tight. Yeah.
0: Because
1: if he hits and there's a three-inch gap, three inch gap, three inch gap and then I could break every rib in my <laughs> there's no telling what damage would be done. And I thought if Undertaker and I went up there, and man, this is the most, you know, this is an iconic scene: Undertaker and Foley back up, Undertaker Mankind, Undertaker Foley back up on top of the cell. Here comes the mandible claw, Mr. Sacco. Here I am up on Undertaker's back. But instead of just dropping backwards, he's doing it from 16 feet, maybe been 20 by that point. And the key is we gotta be tight. And the key is we're gonna go right through that freaking ring. Boom, ching, just, and there'll be something underneath it, not on the surface. So I don't know how we, I want it to look more realistic. And I want it to be almost, you don't think you get some holy. Oh, my uh, gosh. For minutes. And then when that first hand, whoever it was, comes up out of there, I don't know how you finish from there. Uh, or maybe that's just the end of it, you know? But that was the big bump. Two stretcher that jobs. That I never had. Two point. stretcher jobs. And uh, I'm getting the buzz because again, you know, that's it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad
2: we didn't see it. If something goes wrong there,
1: <laughs> whoa, yeah, there's no margin for error. Yeah, and and there's you know even though Undertaker would be on top of me, I don't know if I could do that to a guy with a family because that's so dangerous on his behalf too. And and clearly, you know, um, I would have been facing a very high risk of serious injury too. Yeah, I'm uh, I still believe I could have done it, and it would have been the greatest bump in the history professional wrestling.
0: Well,
2: before we get there, uh, Orton's gonna attack you on Raw from behind, send you to the hospital, but of course you return for the main event just in time to get some revenge. That's uh, almost like a Raw crutch at this point. You've been sent to the hospital and come <laughs> back just in time, many, many times. Uh, the Raw from Portland on February 9th sees you cut another promo on Orton. And this is the one where you reveal that Orton went AWOL from the Marines. And at this point, that was not public knowledge. Nah. Maybe a few smart fans had read about
1: it online, but... I probably shouldn't have gone there. I mean, I did it with his blessing. But, geez, that could have resulted in Randy being called up for action.
2: What um, What do you remember about that promo and how it got greenlit and what the reaction was <sighs> from, the, from the crowd and from the boys in the back? I band?
1: think I was trying to talk about uh, the theory of transference. I wouldn't have called it transference where Randy has questions about his own courage, which is why he questions mine. And I also believe we have mm-hmm. to go back in time to see if that was the day that Rashid Wallace was traded from the Portland Trailblazers mm-hmm. uh, while he sat in the crowd. I can't remember if I, uh, if I was in the ring afterwards. This may have been a completely different Portland experience. But I told um, Rob Van Dam that as a bonus for him, he was going to get to go to Rashid Wallace's locker and keep anything he found. And then uh, Rob says to me like, "Does that mean he smokes a lot of pot, man?" I go, "Yeah, yeah, that's the idea." <laughs> as soon as I said that, you know, because Rashid, I believe, had been penalized for failing tests, yeah. and he was, you know, he's a, a weed guy. Um, but I may be confusing my Portland, uh, my Portland moments. Uh, Portland, great historic wrestling city. This is where they put
2: you through the uh, the power bomb, the Batista bomb, through the table, and all that jazz. Uh, but it does feel like, in hindsight, that these days bringing up that you went AWOL from the Marines and you were court-martialed and all that, and you're positioning as you know it's not really legend killer versus legend killer, but it's coward versus coward. Uh, I could see how that would rub some guys the wrong way, but Randy was okay with it. Yeah, I
1: shouldn't. I wish I hadn't done it wasn't worth the risk, the reward wasn't worth that risk. Um, I wish I hadn't done it, it did add to the, the promo, but um, again, I wish I hadn't done it. So
2: this is really the first time Batista is the one, you know, uh, doing some physical stuff with you. At this point, it had primarily been uh, Orton. Was, was Hunter involved in position, I mean, this is his stable, I know he's got different plans for WrestleMania, but creatively as you guys are running through this stuff or maybe going through, I don't know if you did a dry run back in that day or not, is
1: Hunter involved in that at all since it is still sorta kinda his creative? I don't recall Hunter having a hand in it, at least not when I was there. Stephanie was the producer for some of our segments. Um, and I re- you know I remember telling Randy he was supposed to hit me with the belt and he had never done anything where you're using a you know foreign object like that so my way of doing it at least I mean it might not be everyone's I said you, what you do is you run into me as hard as you can physically with as much of your body as you can while keeping you know so instead of coming here with the belt you are a moving you, you know you boom, you're moving and you've got that belt so that when you make impact, it looks good all over. That's my way of doing it. And just to show you, you know, the the difference of interpretation, you know, I, when Randy lays me out, I say, so Mick, you." I say, Randy, so then you get in my face and you go, yes,
0: Mick, you are my
1: bitch, like a whisper. And when Stephanie interprets it, it's, yes, Mick, you are my bitch. So I was like... I think my way's better, but at that, I think what we got was the yell. But that's just two different people's ways of looking at it. To me, the whisper is more effective than the mm-hmm. yell. You can't say the yell wasn't effective because everything we did was clicking.
2: No doubt. Uh-
1: StarCast returns to the Chicago area this Labor Day weekend. Tickets for StarCast 6 are now on sale at StarCast.com and include AEW All-Out ticket bundle options. Join us at the Hyatt Regency Schaumburg starting Friday night, September 1st, for unique fan experiences with wrestling legends from yesterday and superstars from today. Follow StarCast events on Twitter for the latest updates about all things StarCast. StarCast 6 is brought to you in part by ProWrestlingCrate.com monthly mystery crates for diehard wrestling fans. Plans start at $9.95 and are the perfect gift for any wrestling fan. Visit
0: GrowWrestlingCrate.com today. Hey guys, Double J, Jeff Jarrett. Need to call a timeout real quick here. I wanted to tell your listeners what I've been telling my world listeners for a while now. It's about all the incredible things happening over on adfreeshows.com. On the debut episode of Making the Town,
1: Lumini takes us through the memorable matches and moments of the famed ECW arena, including one that was never seen.
0: Something very special happened after the power went off. Uh, Paul Heyman went out into the ring and spoke to the crowd without a microphone. And the crowd just stayed quiet and listened. And he gave the most heartfelt thank you to that crowd that night. And uh, the biggest shame of it is there's no footage of it because the power went out. On an all new Tuesday with the Taskmaster, Kevin Sullivan talks about what some of the greatest factions of all time have in common. Four horsemen, four guys Mm -hmm. when they're in the trunks. NWO, four guys when they're the strongest and then bloodline, four guys, but they also had a manager. Each one of them, JJ, Eric, and Paul. E. Hey,
1: that's just a small taste of what ad free shows has waiting for you, including a brand new
0: perk, getting to join in on the live recordings of the shows with four levels to choose from. See for yourself. Why ad free shows is the, Best value in wrestling today. Sign up now at adfreeshows.com. That's right.
1: Sign up today at adfreeshows.com.